Would you turn in your Bible, please, to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 2 and verse 41. Acts, chapter 2 and verse 41. And I want to talk to you this morning regarding the doctrine of salvation. Does that sound like anything you'd be interested in? The doctrine of salvation. A very familiar passage and a very familiar theme. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added unto the church daily, such as should be saved. I shall preach my sermon this morning around three very simple headings. First, I want to talk about the experience of salvation. Secondly, I want to talk about the expression of salvation. And thirdly, I want to talk about some evidences of salvation. Now, regarding the experience, I'm happy to announce that Baptist folks still believe that salvation is an experience. It's not something you just wake up with some morning, not knowing where it came from, or how you got it, or what you're going to do with it. It's an experience that happens in time and space. It's something you can get your hands on, get your teeth into. It's something you can know about in your head and feel in your heart. It is a life-changing, soul-saving experience. Now, In verse 41, our key verse, when the text says, they gladly received his word, it means that on the day of Pentecost, as Peter preached that marvelous gospel sermon, 3,000 sinners by faith embraced, believed, trusted, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the bottom line is, when a sinner by faith comes to trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
they experience the salvation of the soul. Now, as I have observed this experience in Acts chapter 2, it has become clear in my thinking that at least three things were involved in the experience. Their intellects were involved, their emotions were involved, and their wills, their volition were involved. I want us to analyze these three things. I want to begin by telling you that intellectually, there must be a proper Christology. Now, by that I mean, in order for you to be saved today, you must comprehend, you must clearly understand certain fundamental, basic truths about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Now, please don't make a mistake at this point. I do not mean to imply that you would have to know everything about the person and the work of Jesus in order to be so uh, to be saved. I'm glad that's true, aren't you? I was saved when I was 16 years old. There was much about the person and work of Jesus that I did not fully comprehend. Most of the theological cliches and phrases I was not familiar with. For example, I don't think I had decided when I was 16 years old whether I was an infra or supra lapsarian Calvinist in my views about the death of Jesus. I hadn't worked through that yet. I don't think I could have stood up and given a good explanation about propitiation. Can you say that with me? Propitiation. That wonderful Bible doctrine that teaches us how in his death, Jesus, through his sufferings, through the shedding of his blood, he fully satisfied the claims of holy justice which were against us. And thereby, he turned away the wrath of God from our souls. Well, I couldn't have explained propitiation when I was 16 years old. But when I found out about it, I liked it. I wanted to know how to spell it. I wanted to know how to pronounce it. I thought, hot dog, justice has been satisfied, and there's no condemnation. Now, that's propitiation. I don't think I could have given an explanation about expiation. Can you say that? expiation. What on earth does that mean? Well, 
that teaches us very simply how in his death, Jesus became our substitute. He became the scapegoat. God took our sins and placed them on Jesus. And in his death, Jesus took our sins out of view. He carried them into the regions of the unknown. He removed them as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are gone. That's expiation. Oh, I might not have known how to explain that when I got saved, but when I found out about expiation, I liked it. What about you? You don't have to know all of the theological phrases and cliches in order to be saved this morning. But you have to know some things and you have to know them correctly or you can't be saved. I want you to look at verse 22. Is your Bible still open? Now here's my advice. Don't ever close your Bible unless I tell you. I want you to look at verse 22. Now, Peter has commenced to preach his Pentecostal sermon. I want you to hear this excerpt from the sermon. I want you to see what he considered to be essential to a proper presentation of the gospel. Now, he's preaching And here's what he says. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having uh, it being impossible that he should be holden of it. If you skip down to verse 32, he reiterates concerning the resurrection. This same Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Again, in verse 34, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, Peter hasn't told them everything about Jesus, but look at what he has told them. First, he has told them that Jesus of Nazareth is more than just an ordinary man. You can't be saved believing in just an ordinary man, even a great man. Jesus is a man, but he's more than just a man. He is God's son. He is God in human flesh. And he proved this by performing miracles and wonders and signs. But not only that, Peter says, he did not die for any wrongdoing of his own. 
He died at the hands of wicked men. But you need to understand that God has raised him from the dead and he's alive forevermore. And not only is he alive, he's the Lord. Now look, if you'd be saved, you have to know these things about Jesus. You might not understand the theological ramifications of the incarnation. You might not comprehend fully how that the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus could be joined and subsist in perfect union. But you've got to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He died on the cross in the place of sinners and that God raised Him from the dead. And He's the Lord. This is the gospel that we preach. This is the hope that we have. Intellectually, there must be a proper Christology. And let me tell you that emotionally, there must be a profound conviction. I want you to look at verse 37. Here we have the response of the people who've been listening to the sermon. Now, when they heard this, that is, when they heard Peter's sermon, they were pricked, they were cut, they were convicted in their hearts, and they cried out, What must we do? My stars, I don't know what I would do if right in the middle of my sermon folks stood up and said, Preacher, you've said enough. I want to be saved. I don't know what I would do, but I'd love to have an opportunity to find out. Wouldn't you like to get in on a service like that? You'll never convince me Peter was through preaching for at least two reasons. One, Baptist preachers don't get through that quickly. And number two, verse 40 says, And with many other words he did testify and exhort. He wasn't through preaching, but he'd already presented the essential elements of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the Spirit of God had illumined their minds to comprehend this truth. The Spirit of the, of the living Lord now has convicted them of their own need of a Savior. And with urgency and desperation, they cried out. What must we do? Now, I don't mean to imply that if you'd be saved this morning, you'd have to manifest the same degree or measure of emotionalism that every other person who comes to the altar would manifest. We're not all the same emotionally, are we? Some time ago, I was out on the lake fishing with my brother-in-law and I hooked a two-pound crappie on my nine-foot little jewel brim buster pole with a six-pound test line. And my brother-in-law foolishly assuming that I needed help reached forth his hand, took hold of my line and commenced to retrieve my fish. 
And I got highly emotional about that. And I said to him in words that I thought he could quickly comprehend. You'd rather stick your hand into a barrel of rattlesnakes than to grab my line when I've got a fish on. That's why I go fishing. I'll hook him, catch him, or lose him on my own. I'm not concerned about my form. I'm concerned about my fun. I'm a highly emotional person. But I'm not the kind of person who weeps very easily. Now, why is that? Does that mean that my heart is hard and I am cold and unfeeling? No, it's just not my emotional makeup. Now, some of you ladies in the room are highly emotional. Some of you husbands might have wondered in recent days, what in heaven's name is she crying about? Some of you ladies can read about a new Walmart store opening up two counties over and shed tears over that. We're not all the same emotionally. And it would be an error to suggest that every person coming here to the altar to be saved would have to manifest the same degree or measure of emotionalism. But I do mean to say unequivocally clear that when a person experiences salvation, they experience an upheaval of their emotions. Their heart strings are stirred with a deep, with a profound sense of their own condemnation and guilt before God. Emotionally, there must be a profound conviction. Now, volitionally, there must be a powerful conversion. There must be a mighty turning from sin. I want you to look at verse 38 now. Peter responds to their query. What must we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to them that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The commandment is to repent. And to repent means to turn about. It is a change of mind that leads to a change in conduct. And listen now, you don't repent accidentally or by happenstance. You repent on purpose. It is a decision of the will. And let me tell you this. If you have not comprehended who Jesus is, if you have not felt the pain of conviction, and if you have not turned in repentance toward God, you are yet in your sin. And you need to be saved.
Now put that aside. And I want to talk to you about the expression of salvation. We'll visit verse 41, our key verse again. Listen to it. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them, that is unto the church, which was already in existence before Pentecost. They were baptized on profession of their faith into the church. Now let me tell you three things about baptism. Baptism is a profession of faith. When you get baptized, you are confessing that you believe that Jesus died for you, that he was buried and God raised him from the dead. Number two, baptism is a personal testimony. It says to those who look on, I have died to sin. I have been buried with Christ in baptism, and I have been raised to walk in newness of life. What a testimony. You'll never give a more dramatic testimony of your experience of salvation than when you follow Christ in water baptism. And number three, baptism is a prophetic statement. It says to those who look on, I believe that one day, though my body lies cold in the grave, yet because I have been planted in the likeness of Christ's death, I shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. When you get saved and you get baptized, you become a prophet telling forth what you believe is going to take place in the future. Baptism is an outward expression of this inward experience of salvation. Have you been saved? Have you been baptized? Now I want you to see a third thing. I want you to see the evidences of salvation. I shall mention three of them. Number one, they were men of steadfast conviction. Look at verse 42. It says, And they continued steadfastly. Now the old country preacher stopped there. He didn't have much vocabulary. He wasn't all that articulate. And here's the way he said it. He said, now folks, when the Bible says they continued steadfastly, what that means is they didn't backslide right away. They didn't join one Sunday morning and have company come that afternoon and not be able to make it back out to the evening service. And next Sunday, they had to go out of town to visit Granny, and they stayed so late. By the time they got home that Sunday afternoon, about 2.30, they were worn and weary and weren't able to make it back out to that evening service. And on Wednesday, they had, had uh, intended to attend the 
midweek Bible study and prayer time, but the little six-year-old boy came home from school with a high temperature of about 98.7, and they didn't think he ought to be out in the night air. All these viruses going on. Well, it does happen that way today, doesn't it? But that doesn't have anything to do with what this passage is saying. It makes good preaching. It's just not got anything to do with this text. This text says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What you believe will determine how you behave. They believed the truth and continued in it. They were men of simple compassion. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Not communism, not Marxism, not socialism, not a castigation of free enterprise or capitalism. They were not commanded to do it. They were not required to do it. Why on earth would they have sold their possessions and given it to others? I'll tell you why. There was a tremendous need in Jerusalem at this time. There was a great famine. There was great need. They had had an experience of salvation. Their hearts were tender, easily moved with compassion, and they did what they could. Nothing more, nothing less. The Bible says if we have this world's goods and seeth our brother in need, and shut up our bowels of compassion against him. How dwelleth the love of God in us? Men of simple compassion. And number three, they were spectacularly charismatic in the New Testament sense. Now, Baptists have allowed the Neo-Pentecostals to rob us of the use of a perfectly good New Testament concept. You see, Baptists who are saved are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And Baptists who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are gifted by the Spirit. And those who are indwelt and gifted by the Spirit, have in them a river of living water flowing out. And to be charismatic is simply to live in the overflow of a Spirit-filled life. I want you to look at verse 46. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness. Now underscore that word, with gladness and singleness of heart. Here it is again. Praising God and having favor with all the people. I have wondered how they went about 
praising God. Do you suppose they just lifted their hands toward heaven and went around saying, Hallelujah, bless the Lord? Well, I don't know for sure if that's what they did. But if they did, it's okay. You ought to travel around the country with me and see what I see. I'm in a church on Sunday morning and the choir sings one of the great anthems of the faith and everybody in the room gets excited while everybody's lifting their hands toward heaven and shouting hallelujah. And I go to another church right across town that evening and a good old-fashioned southern gospel quartet gets up to sing one of the old favorites and the folks sit out there like so many knots on a log and after a while one sister gets a little bit excited and she lifts one hand about halfway up and one of the deacons elbows his wife and said, hey, Doris, look at that. I tell you, Doris, I'm going to have to say something. Doris, if I don't say something, first thing you know, they'll be, they'll be swinging from the chandeliers. What does this mean? They went about with gladness, praising God. What does that mean? It means wherever they were, whomever they were with, they just wanted to brag on Jesus. They just went around bragging on Jesus. Spectacularly charismatic. Did y'all hear about the old country preacher that got to attend a big city church for the first time? He walked down through the plush carpet and found him a comfortable position on a padded pew. And after a while, when the choir and the staff were all marched in and seated together in unison. Very impressive. And later when the choir had finished with the sevenfold amens, the pastor stood and commenced to read his sermon. And in a little while he said something about the Lord. And the old preacher just hollered out, Amen. I believe that. And the pastor lost his place. But in a little while, he regained his composure. And after a while, he said something about heaven and how it's going to be when all the saints get home, how there will be no more sorrow nor crying nor death, for the former things shall be wiped away. And the old preacher could not contain his jubilation he just bellowed out, praise God, I believe that. And an usher came over and tapped him on the shoulder and said, my brother, you are interrupting our service. And the old fellow looked up with surprise and said, but I was just praising the Lord. And the usher said, yes, but you are bothering our preacher." And the old fellow said, but I, I've got religion. I was just praising the Lord. And the usher leaned down and 
said very sternly, I don't care what you got. You didn't get it here. Shut up. (laughs) Well, beloved, I'm sure that wouldn't ever happen here in your church. But I tell you, I've preached in some churches where on Sunday morning it was colder than a turkey snout in February. And if some dear brother or sister at a time not written on the printed program for testimonies got to thinking about what they used to be before they were saved, got to thinking about what they are now since they've been saved and what they're going to be one of these days when Jesus comes and they stood up and just began to brag on Jesus. There'd be a lot of Baptists go home with a crick in their neck because they turned around so quickly to see what in heaven's name was happening. But listen now, nothing gives more convincing evidence that you've had an experience of salvation than the fact that you love the Word of God. You love the grand doctrinal and theological themes of the Christian religion. Your heart is tender and easily moved with compassion. And wherever you are, whomever you're with, you just want to brag on Jesus. Have you had this kind of experience? If not, I pray you'll bend your knee and bow your heart and call on the name of the Lord. Let's bow and pray. Our Father, if there's even one in our midst without the Savior, I pray your spirit would quicken them. I pray that you would give them life in Christ Jesus today. In his name I pray, amen.